I wish therefore to give you the help of Erlind. from New York City on Aer Lingus. It was great. Uh, the service was beautiful. Everybody was just great. Well, American Airlines from San Diego to New York and uh, uh, Aer Lingus from uh, New York to Shannon then to Dublin. How did Aer Lingus compare to other airlines you've flown? Favorably, I think. What I thought of it? No, we didn't care. <laughs> we had a very bad day in that the computer broke down in New York and the track for the luggage broke down here, but otherwise we had a fine time. If we were making this programme 25 years ago, I would have supported the decision to go on to the routes. We now have to plan for, say, the next uh, 10 years, and I can't see the same returns that we had in the past 25 coming to us in the next 10. Aviation is a rapidly changing world. We're trying in Ireland to freeze a regulatory regime from the late 60s and hope that it stays on until 1990. It might not do so, and the longer we keep it in existence, it's going to be very expensive on the taxpayer. Trinity College economist Sean Barrett. He's certainly not the darling of Aer Lingus for his view that it's high time to get off the North Atlantic route. 25 years ago this month, the national airline began its scheduled flights to America. But for the last two years alone, annual losses on the route have stood at nearly £20 million per annum. Later, from Geneva, we'll hear the Director-General of IATA say that the North Atlantic is now an airline graveyard. But there may be reasons to stay, despite that fact. The 28th of April, 1958, and the first Irish Erlinth of flight leaves for America. It's an occasion of some excitement, and this clip from our archives catches the mood. We have tremendous excitement here now, as photographers ask just for one more, please, before the distinguished visitors leave the airport restaurant aboard the plane, which is ready 20 minutes to 9 for the takeoff at 5 past 10. And here's Mr. Lamas now. We didn't have time to speak. I'll ask him to say a couple of words, Hugh. Could you please say a few words? Well, of course, I'm very pleased that the result of a great deal of work and effort has uh, culminated tonight in this inaugural flight. And I hope that it will be the commencement of a very successful service which will benefit Ireland directly and indirectly. Thank you very much indeed. Mr. Lamas put his pipe in his mouth, shaking hands with the last few first people and dashing down out through the uh, door, down the stairs and through the transit lounge into the waiting aircraft. Our man on the spot in 1958 was, of course, Kevin O'Kelly. Aer Lingus, or Aer Linta, as the American leg of their operation is legally known, came late to the North Atlantic. It wasn't for the want of trying. Ten years earlier, the Fianna Fáil government had approved a plan to commence flights from St. Patrick's Day 1948. But, with prophetic shades of the Knock Airport controversy, 
an election intervened and the new inter-party government of John A. Costello scotched the idea. Planes that had already been purchased were sold off. Planes that would have been competing with American and European carriers already providing scheduled passenger services through Shannon. The general manager of Aer Lingus in 1948 was Jeremiah Dempsey. Today, he thinks it was a mistake not to go ahead. Certainly, in retrospect, and even at the time, I had no doubt because from the time I entered Aer Lingus, um, I remember um, writing to the board saying uh, that after we had, and there was no sophisticated uh, market research about it, but after we had uh, established ourselves across channel, that uh, we should look left, we should look west, and uh, um, think of the market there. So in, in, in the circumstances, uh, I felt from the beginning uh, that it was the uh, next most natural route after cross-channel routes. We had operated 12 proving flights across the Atlantic, getting um, crews familiar and the uh, cabin crew and, of course, the people, people on the flight deck, the uh, pilots, first officers and so on. Um, Operated 12 proving flights, um, opened up offices in Boston and New York. Munster journalist Arthur Quinlan has been reporting from Shannon for nearly 40 years. He now recalls how the cancellation of services was received locally in 1948. Oh, it was like a bombshell to the people of this area because this was the the great hope. We had already seen uh, some of the great airlines of the world operating through Shannon but we hadn't our own flagship uh, operating there and everybody wanted, that was the great hope, was to see the Irish flag on an aircraft, on the tail of an aircraft, coming in and out to Shannon and going on the Atlantic side by side with the others. The decision not to go ahead in 1948 was apparently an economic one. Speaking later in the Doyle, Minister for Industry and Commerce Dan Morrissey pointed to projected losses over the first 12 months of operations and he said that no estimates had been furnished beyond that. Then, General Manager of Aer Lingus, Jeremiah Dempsey. Certainly it was a, a coalition decision in, of 1948 uh, on the basis that uh, they felt, uh, you know, that we weren't ready for it and that there were uh, more important things in 1948 uh, and that uh, an Atlantic route was rather uh, low down on the, pri- on the priorities as far as they were concerned uh, and that was certainly a government decision. But we... Um, uh, sold the aircraft uh, after um, establishing offices, taking on the staff. And, uh, after the decision, I went to uh, New York and Boston and conducted process. turned out to be much more like an Irish wake than anything else. Uh, severance pay was uh, generous um, because we had an eye to the future on the basis that uh, we'd, we'd be back, um, uh, to use Mike Arthur's words, in a, in a later day. But another attempt to launch the service was thwarted in the early 50s. US authorities were being obstructive and Irish officials thought twice about a commitment that might not be sure to succeed. But could an Irish airline have really failed in the 1950s? These were rich years on the North Atlantic. Transworld Airlines was just one of the companies benefiting from it. And Liam Boyd, TWA's man in Ireland for many years, believes that Aer Lingus must have lost a great deal of money by their absence during the early 50s. There's no doubt about that. Um, from the Aer Lingus point of view, it was very unfortunate that their transatlantic services were cancelled 
because they were the great years. They would have been one of the first transatlantic carriers. They would have been in before many uh, European national carriers, and they would have been able to build up that experience over that 10-year period or 12-year period. And from an Aer Lingus point of view, I think it was unfortunate for them that they didn't go ahead, they weren't allowed to go ahead with their transatlantic service. And journalist Arthur Quinlan recalls that for any carrier on the North Atlantic in those years, there were often too many customers for the number of flights. There was plenty of scope for more operators. Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, I can remember so well at that time. Shannon was the great mecca, the place where people from all over Europe tried to get to, to get seats across the Atlantic. You must remember there was a tremendous number of people wanted to move from Europe to America at that particular time. The, the war was over. You had all the GI brides. You had refugees. You had all the people, priority people, going, trying to get through to America. You had no seats. I can remember one time seeing up to 100 GI brides waiting at Shannon, hope, hopeful of getting out, getting a seat at Shannon to America. But no, it wasn't possible. They, their priorities very often weren't high enough. But at last, in 1958, Erlingus got the go-ahead to cash in on the North Atlantic. This time they hired some propeller aircraft to begin with. The lease was with an American company called Seaboard and Western, run by Ray and Art Norden. From his home in Connecticut, New England, Art Norden recalls the deal. It was an arrangement which we both felt would be beneficial. Uh, we had brand new equipment, but we knew the route well. We'd been on the route for over ten years. Uh, we ca- we carried military passengers uh, between uh, the United States and Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, we had the proper crews and the proper maintenance. And it seemed that it was a good way for Aer Lingus to determine whether or not they could really attract the traffic because they had that that big TWA staring them in the face. And they didn't really, I don't think they really knew to what extent the TWA would overwhelm them. But by taking, by by taking this route, they were able to provide a service and allow the traffic to grow to whatever extent it was going to grow. And a pre-inaugural flight of the new service left for Ireland on April the 26th, 1958. On board out of New York were that city's mayor, Robert Wagner, and other guests. Also travelling was Jeremiah Dempsey, still the general manager of Aer Lingus in 1958. He remembers that that pre-inaugural was not without incident. Flying the Great Circle, we were bound to fly over Gander and intended so doing, over flying Gander. But on the way up, we lost an engine. I put lost in parentheses. It didn't exactly fall off the airplane. But um, in the jargon of the time, I mean, you always referred to when you had to feather a propeller because these were propeller airplanes. Uh, you always, you had lost it. Well, the pilot managed to put town safely at Gander in Newfoundland. But the plane had to be flown back to New York for repairs and passengers were stranded for 18 hours. The remote airfield of Gander has quite a reputation as the air industry's version of purgatory. One of the passengers on board that pre-inaugural flight, Irish-American journalist Bob Considine, put it this way. 
Gander. That's a place where they remove your necktie, shoelaces, razor, and pin knife when they announce a 14-hour delay. Well, while Bob Considine and the other passengers waited at Gander, a welcoming party was waiting at Shannon, including journalist Arthur Quinlan. The great reception party had been set up at Shannon, and uh, we were waiting on and on, and then the word came that it was to be cancelled. We had a a great hosting prepared, and uh, they also were launching, on that particular day, they were launching a new... uh, a drink called the leprechaun and everybody felt that it was the leprechaun that had caused the trouble and brought the gremlins into the into the, the, the inaugural flight and caused it to be delayed What was the, what was the leprechaun? Uh, that's a vital piece of historical information <laughs> I think we should get on the record <laughs> Well, it, it was a mixture of Irish whiskey and tonic water which uh, it was thought that it would be people who feel that Irish coffee because you must remember Irish coffee was launched at Shannon well at Foynes across the, the water uh, many years earlier but it was a, supposed to be something that would, would rival Irish coffee and uh, we certainly we, we tasted it and it did seem good and I know everybody had a great time even though the aircraft didn't arrive it was a bit of an anticlimax as far as you're concerned but we all enjoyed ourselves with the tea on the flute and the cradle on the fiddle up and in the middle like a heron on the gradle up down hands around cross into the wall oh why didn't we the gaiety until the flute was ball Eighteen hours later, the aircraft did finally arrive and, and got hurriedly up to Dublin. And once it arrived in Dublin, preparations were soon completed for the inaugural flight proper to America. On the night of April the 28th, 1958, it was seen off by Antishach Eamon de Valera. I wish, therefore, to give you the health of Air Linde, to wish it success and to pray that God may keep in his protection and uh, have mercy on all who, who, who are engaged in this work and that he will constantly have it in his keep. I give you then Erlinche, Gugri, Gia, Bla, Erequijem. And when the plane touched down at Shannon on the way out, Arthur Quinlan met some of the distinguished passengers. On the return flight, it, it, it left Dublin at about uh, 20 past 10 and arrived down at Shannon about 40 minutes later. And, uh, of course, the passengers at that time, Mr Lamass, uh, as, uh, was, on, was on board as Tarnished Day, was on board at that time. And people like Tim, like uh, Johnny Layden, Tim O'Driscoll, who were the really the pioneers of aviation in Ireland. Those three people were on, were on board the airplane. And one of those people, Tim O'Driscoll, was not just on the board of Erlinthe in 1958, by then, he was also Director-General of Board Falcha, a post he was to hold until 1971. How did he find that first Irish flight across the Atlantic? I think the greatest feeling we all had was one of real exaltation. I mean, we had, we had been uh, stymied ten years earlier in getting an Atlantic service going, and here now we were in the latest type aircraft and setting off on this flight... I think the feeling was one of great delight and, you know, the, the, the obvious feeling that we were in, engaged in something which was absolutely historic. In those days, of course, it took 15 hours or so, didn't it, to cross That's the right. Atlantic? You must yeah, have got yeah. to know the other passengers very well. You did, but, of course, uh, we all settled down to sleep. In, in fact, 
I saw one guy going into the men's room and uh, changing his clothes. He got into nightdress. <laughs> it was that length of a journey. I couldn't see anybody doing it now. So at last, Aer Lingus were flying the Atlantic, albeit in rented, propeller-driven constellations. Soon, though, they persuaded the government to allow the national airline to buy its own planes, and the decision was made to purchase new jets. First, the Boeing 720 appeared in Irish colours, then the gas-guzzling 707, and finally the more economical 747s, or jumbo jets. The jumbo would want to be somewhat more economical on fuel, given that at today's prices one costs about £50 million. Why did Aer Lingus decide to begin buying Boeing rather than some other type of jet? Jeremiah Dempsey. At the British end, uh, there were the days when uh, the great, uh, if you like, um, calamity of the comet took place. And uh, we, uh, looking at the scene in America, we looked at uh, McDonnell Douglas, we looked at Lockheed, we looked at Boeing, um, and on um, the technical advice that we had from within our own organisation, um, we decided that uh, we'd um, go Boeing, and that's how we came to be part of the Boeing family. And in fact, the last official act that I committed um, in um, the airline uh, was to sign an order for two 747s. Jeremiah Dempsey's successor as general manager of Aer Lingus was Michael J. Dargan. Today, he's chairman of the company. He also happens to be chairman of Cement Roadstone Holdings, one of Ireland's biggest private companies. It was during Michael Dargan's period as general manager of Aer Lingus that the gold ran out on the North Atlantic. Things began to go wrong for most carriers. But for an Irish operator trying to attract passengers to this country, there's one extra special problem, the Northern Troubles. Michael Dargan has reason to remember their outbreak. As it happens, I was in Derry the night the Burntollet March came in. So it's imprinted on my mind uh, for a number of reasons um, on that night. Well, that had a profound effect uh, because we'd been selling uh, travel to Ireland on a progressive rising basis for over 10 years in uh, the US at that time. And uh, the effect was cumulative. Uh, from that point on, we were selling against great difficulties. You'll remember that the television screens were full of uh, fires and pogroms and violence in Northern Ireland from coast to coast in the US. And it's very hard to sell to the mothers of America that they or should come or their husband should come or their children should come to this little island 3,000 miles away where everybody was gone mad. Uh, so it had a substantial effect and over that effect, we've never got to this day. The, the great growth stopped pretty abruptly. Besides the outbreak of northern troubles, the price of oil began to spiral about this time. In the good old days of the 60s, fuel bills only cost £8 in every hundred the airline spent on its operations. By 1982, that figure was to more than triple. £26 in every hundred was spent on oil last year. But the major threat to Aer Lingus in the 70s were to be charters and increases in the other low-cost competition, such as Laker and Transamerica. It's not that the national airline has been slow to compete and to fight its own corner as fiercely as possible. 
For years, the American airlines Pan Am and TWA were prevented from landing in Dublin. Official policy forced them to turn around at Shannon. Until Pan Am ceased operations in 1974, Con McGovern was its man in Ireland. He was directly involved in that long-running dispute over landing rights. Well, that's a service uh, indeed we fought for and uh, endeavoured to obtain for, for many, many years. But um, the real problem with it was that um, the Irish government, um, naturally supported by Aer Lingus, um, decided to keep the American carriers out of Dublin. Um, we argued on the basis that uh, it would increase tourism in general by allowing the American carriers because the American carriers were operating from multiple cities throughout the States, whereas Aer Lingus were limited to uh, just the, the eastern seaboard and uh, then they, they had uh, Chicago in addition. I put it to Aer Lingus chairman Michael Dargan that the national airline, now complaining so bitterly about unfair competition, weren't beyond a bit of it themselves when it came to keeping Pan Am and TWA out of Dublin. No, I wouldn't uh, think that would be a fair expression of view at all. They were allowed to fly into Shannon as we were required to fly into Shannon. We had to fly into Shannon too. Now, uh, they were then able to go on to... London and 50 other places beyond there. We had only one place to go on to on our rights, which was Dublin, which was a very small market segment on the Atlantic relative to what they could serve. Now, if they were able to take us on in Dublin, as well as having the support of all the other uh, centres, biggest centres in Europe, from uh, London through Frankfurt and Paris on to Rome and on around the world, we would have had no chance at all. Uh, You can take it that if our case were not a very good one indeed, we wouldn't have been able to sustain it at all because uh, the the big stake was in American hands all the time and it was only the force of logic that we could muster that was stopping them from being unduly difficult with us. The US are very friendly people, if you visit them, most hospitable in the world, but when it comes to trading relationships, they're very severe. And looking back now, how did former TWA man Liam Boyd feel about being kept out of Dublin for so long? Well, we never felt bitter, but um, we were never impressed with the legality of the argument. Obviously, if an American carrier got into Dublin in competition with them, it would somewhat hurt their ability to carry out their objectives. So they, at times, had... Uh, it's going too far to say a selfish instance, but sometimes I believe that Aer Lingus's interests were not completely in conformity with the overall national interest. But is there a conflict between Aer Lingus naturally trying to keep down the competition and other national organisations like Board Falcha trying to encourage as many tourists as possible to come to Ireland? Tim O'Driscoll is not just a former board member of Aer Linta, but also a former Director General of Board Falcha for many years. Does he feel that there's a conflict of interest? 
I think that would be, a, you know, an oversimplification. Both Voyager and, in fact, I was very much involved at the time and also with the question of Shannon, we had to balance our certainty of, of the r- results, the guaranteed results from a national airline, to the non-guaranteed results from TWA and Pan Am. The issue still is, 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 is open. Uh, you have the problem of the Northwest and so on operating into Ireland. But Fulcher will encourage them. But they will never, I would say, do anything which would be of uh, catastrophic impact on, on Aer Lingus. We depend on Erling, on Irish Airlines. And just before Christmas, I was in the Seychelles Islands. They had, uh, you know, they're rather isolated, rather a bit like us on the edge of a continent. Two airlines were pulling out, and their tourism was simply disastrously hit. Now, we were always afraid that even though our good colleagues in TWA and Pan Am uh, were there flying, ready to fly in and out of Ireland, they could always discard Ireland. But if we had an Irish airline, a national airline, then we had a, a secured means of communication. Nearly nine out of every ten passengers on the Aer Lingus transatlantic route are travelling for non-business reasons. But for Trinity College economist Sean Barrett, the important thing is not that tourists fly Aer Lingus in particular, but that as many as possible get here. Do low airfares promote tourism? I think they do. Uh, is one airline as good as another at doing it? I think roughly they are. And uh, if we have some people who will do it without any cost to the Irish taxpayer, uh, why not give it a try? Isn't it important, though, that the Irish taxpayer, even if it costs some money, has an airline carrying the Irish flag on the North Atlantic? Well, you're into the realms, I suppose, of political and nationalistic kind of matters there. And you know, what is the advantage of a flag carrier? And I think economists tend to be sceptical about that and uh, I just don't want to uh, demean the argument in any way, but maybe Eamon Cockton is a better flag carrier because he gets more primetime television uh, advertising Ireland uh, than a plane turning up once a day in an airport out in the suburbs someplace. That Airlines are keen on the idea of themselves as flag carriers. Economists aren't. And some people would say, for instance, the success of the United States in having low-cost aviation, one of the reasons is that it never had a national flag carrier. Pan Am tried to become that carrier, but the government's always resisted it. And it's British policy, as you know, uh, not to have British Airways as a flag carrier. It's to be privatised probably in the life of the next government. In the early 70s, the Americans had to be allowed into Dublin. If they were not, said US officials, then Aer Lingus would lose its landing rights at New York. Ironically, the Yanks were no sooner into the capital city than they decided to end their entire operation in Ireland. The recession was biting hard, and both Pan Am and TWA felt that the whole Irish run was just not worth it. Soon, though, they were replaced by newcomers, Transamerica and Northwest Orient. These are low-cost operators who force Erlingus to keep down prices if the national airline is to hold on to its traditionally large share of the market. The newcomers pass through Shannon on their way to Europe. They don't appear to be interested in going on to Dublin. It's low-cost operators like Northwest Orient and Laker, as well as a rash of charters, that have led over the last ten years to a bloodbath of competition on the North Atlantic. United States government agencies have encouraged this fierce battle by pressing for the deregulation of international air services. Dog eat dog, and may the lowest-priced airline win the customers and survive. 
All others go to the wall, please. Last year alone, a staggering total of $500 million was lost on the North Atlantic by the combined airlines as the price war raged. And there have been some spectacular collapses like those at Laker and Braniff. Michal O'Rean, planning and commercial adviser at Aer Lingus, recently delivered a long paper on the subject. He called his paper Survival in a Bloodbath. I asked him how come, despite huge losses, so many companies still seem willing and able to stick it out on the American route? Well, of course, some of the airlines that uh, were very prominent in this activity have gone out of business. Uh, Laker, obviously, uh, and Braniff, a US carrier that entered the Atlantic uh, four years ago uh, and went out of business uh, one year ago. Um, many of the US supplementals that were the original operators of uh, charters uh, on the Atlantic in the late 60s and early 70s, many of them went out of business too. So it's, as I said in a recent paper, it's a bloodbath. Um, and the continuing pattern of losses is, is you know, unique in an in international highly technological industry. In fact, there is the possibility of some spectacular um, exits uh, from the North Atlantic scene uh, during the year 1983 other carriers will continue to struggle on. Um, but what we are saying is that a sensible, regulated environment is essential for profitable air service between Europe and North America. So can no one bring some order into this chaos? The International Air Transport Association, or IATA as it's better known, is in effect the trade association of the world airlines. As such, consumer interests and some officials in America accuse it of operating a cartel which protects the company's profits but costs the customer dear. Traditionally, IATA has the right to negotiate international prices subject to government approval. With a role like that, you might also expect it to try and limit the number of carriers in operation. But it cannot do so even if it wanted. On a link from Geneva, the Director-General of IATA, Nut Hammerskold. No, IATA is, uh, has no powers of that kind. Uh, IATA is strictly regulated by governments and uh, uh, we are there to provide the airlines a place where they can discuss certain of their uh, common uh, uh, interests and uh, especially uh, tariffs. Uh, capacity is uh, uh, strictly outside our scope. On the question of tariffs, the United States airlines in particular have been undercutting European operators in recent years. Can IATA not prevent that happening? Uh, you now have uh, an agreement uh, between governments on both sides of the North Atlantic, which has been uh, uh, in force for about uh, six or eight months, which, after a long hiatus, provides the airlines a framework within which they can uh, uh, negotiate common fares uh, and rates. And uh, the thing is getting back to some form of order again. Already, though, there are indications that that agreement is not working particularly successful, aren't there? Uh, you may be better informed uh, than I, but after uh, four or five years of uh, complete chaos, uh, I think uh, uh, at least I am pretty uh, optimistic that we will get back to uh, some form of uh, normal. But Michal O'Rean of Erlingus isn't so optimistic about the future or about that agreement between the US and European interests. In fact, he's called the agreement a house of cards. 
the principal weakness in it is that there is no provision for uh, a floor price in charters. And the problem continues of people operating services at just marginal cost, taking market away from other carriers and such carriers having to uh, come down in their own prices, again, to non-economic levels. Um, so I think the I say the house of cards because there was this idea that we now had a structure that would uh, straighten out the problems in the Atlantic uh, and it has collapsed. In 1983, there is the possibility of there is the probability of even greater losses by North Atlantic carriers as a whole than in 1982, principally uh, because the scheduled fare structure that IATA carriers were talking about in the newly legitimised IATA are being undermined by charter carriers. The scheduled carriers are reacting to the marginal cost uh, dumping of charter capacity and all fares are going down again. Great for the consumer, disastrous for the airline. Faced with so many financial threats over the past 10 years, Aer Lingus has increasingly looked to areas other than flying to make money. Chairman Michael J. Dargan. When uh, one took the view that the airline industry was in for a very rough time, one had to go further and say, well, how can Aer Lingus survive this rough time that's ahead? And uh, we decided that... uh, to ensure our profitability in the future, we would have to find sources of profit uh, beyond direct airline activities. We considered what we were good at. We had a very good management, uh, very good staff, a uh, great deal of experience at, uh, abroad as well as at home. So we decided to play to those strengths and uh, involve ourselves in businesses that would be related to the things we knew. Uh, which would be able to manage for ourselves and put right if they were already wrong. The many outside activities of Aer Lingus have been highly successful and could be the subject of a documentary in their own right. They include running the giant Dunphy Hotel chain in America and Irish helicopters and Cara computers here at home. Last year alone, the ancillary activities contributed some £50 million net profit to the group's finances. Yet still, overall, the company is in trouble. For one thing, profits are eaten up by interest payments on large debts, debts incurred when successive governments simply failed to invest necessary capital in airline services, capital which a private company with the track record of Aer Lingus would have expected and received from normal shareholders. Government underinvestment reached crisis point as Aer Lingus entered the 1980s. As a short-term, and some would say short-sighted solution, the Department of Finance wanted Aer Lingus to raise money by selling off their most profitable assets, the hotels in America. This, Aer Lingus simply refused to do, and instead talked of dropping the loss-making North Atlantic service. But were they really serious about that threat last year? The current chief executive of Aer Lingus is David Kennedy. Well, I don't like using the word threat, um we didn't make any threat and I don't think it would be appropriate for a, a state-sponsored body to, to make threats to a, to a government. Uh, what we did say to the government was that the correct commercial decision for Aer Lingus is now clearly to withdraw its North Atlantic services. And given that we have always operated under a commercial mandate, we haven't received a subsidy from the shareholder for over 30 years, um, we had to put it to them that the correct commercial decision 
uh, was no longer to continue the Atlantic services and that if we were operating purely on a commercial basis that the correct decision would be to withdraw. In July last year, the government responded to that talk of dropping the American service by ordering Aer Lingus to continue it. They promised to invest some £30 million extra in the company, a sum still far from adequate to restore the national airline to financial health. But adequate or not for Trinity College economist Sean Barrett, this new investment is just a case of pouring good money after bad. I put it to him, though, that he seems to be in a minority of one, as all the deputies who spoke last month in the Doyle about this extra funding wholeheartedly favoured remaining on the Atlantic. That's true, and uh, all the sentiments in uh, the White Paper, A Better Way to play the na- to uh, Plan the Nation's Finances, seem to have been left aside by the same deputies. Uh, not one of them referred to their own uh, Oireachtas Committee report uh, two years earlier, uh, on Erlingus. It's quite an amazing debate to read through. Uh, it's the money of £135 million for the airline was passed on a day in which the standard rate of VAT went up by 5 percentage points and no deputy in the House so there's any connection between uh, increasing tax rates and a total failure to look at the value for money in public expenditure. It's quite an amazing uh, debate and it's, it's, it's no better illustration than the last month or so, of why we're in such a financial set of problems. Are you criticising the performance of Aer Lingus as such, which seems to have been very successful, especially in its ancillary affairs? Are you criticising the government insistence that they maintain the North Atlantic despite the fact that it's going to lose money for any airline? Yes, the, the latter decision. The Minister mentioned that he'd set up an expert group, but it seemed to be mostly comprised of the people who operate the present policy, so perhaps it was rather unfair to get them to uh, say, yes, we've been wrong for a substantial part of the 25 years. And besides investing £30 million extra in equity in Aer Lingus last year, the government has also promised it a special sum of £5 million for each of at least three years. That £5 million per annum is earmarked to help defray the cost of providing a North Atlantic service. But even with this extra contribution, does Aer Lingus chief David Kennedy accept that the American route will continue to fail as a commercial proposition for some time? I think it's probably inevitable that the North Atlantic operation, considered in isolation, will lose money uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I believe, however, that the money which it loses... Um, will be less than that which it has been losing. Um, We've already, through our own efforts, made very substantial reductions in the year just ended in the level of operating loss in the Atlantic. Uh, And if our plans for the year, which is just starting, our financial year starts on the 1st of April, uh, are realised, we'll make further improvements uh, in the course of the current year. But I think it would be unrealistic uh, to pretend that we see any opportunity of the Atlantic operation in isolation becoming profitable. But I think we can get to a situation uh, in which there is a relatively small level of loss on the North Atlantic and that taken together with the rest of our operation, let's assume perhaps uh, about a break-even result for the routes east of Ireland into the United Kingdom and Europe, and continuing profits from our ancillary activities, our diversified operations, um, I believe it is a realistic objective for us to aim at Uh, returning to profit overall as an organisation. And a realistically low level of loss on the North Atlantic would be how much per annum, roughly? Well, I think uh, if you look at what we had the last year we announced our losses in the Atlantic, we were talking then about a £13 million loss. 
Uh, we've knocked that down by a couple of million pounds in the year just ended, and I hope we can repeat that performance again by cost reduction measures within the organisation and hopefully some improvements in the yield. So we're talking about getting it down over a period um, which, by a sum which, taken together with the government contribution of some £5 million for cost alleviation, uh, would be a relatively small sum of money, say of the order of £5 million. And that wouldn't include the interest repayments on the loans outstanding on the North Atlantic? No, but those uh, those repayments continue irrespective of whether the Atlantic uh, continues or not. Do new debts continue as well that would accrue new interest? Uh, if, you, if we can achieve our objective of getting the total operation back into profit, uh, then the answer to that is no, and that's clearly what we're trying to do. Aren't you in a very difficult situation as Chief Executive of a semi-state body in that were you over a private company, you would now be recommending to the board to chop the Atlantic route? But you can't do that for social reasons because it's a semi-state body. Um, yes, there's a certain element of truth in that, um, but I think this is part of the... Uh, complexity of the job of running a state-sponsored body, which uh, one doesn't have to the same extent in any event in the uh, in the private sector, and uh, it's something one has got to live with. And um, we, in, in one sense, our mandate is very clear. We have been given a government directive, if you like, a government decision that the North Atlantic should stay open, and it's up to us now to get on with the job to reduce the loss as much as possible in the North Atlantic within the context of all the difficulties which we have and get the overall operation back into profit. But what does the Director General of IATA, Nut Hammarskjöld, think of the performance of Aer Lingus? I asked him if he's surprised that the company's losses are now running at £20 million per year. No, I think um, the uh, North Atlantic has uh, in a way developed to, uh, to an airline graveyard. And do you think that the days of, of the smaller airlines like Aer Lingus are over, that in future it will be only the giants who will be able to successfully... Um, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, on the contrary, uh, uh, there are certain signs that the giants are weaker than the small airlines. Can you explain that? Yes, you look at your uh, neighbour in the east uh, and at some of the uh, big uh, American airlines, they are faring much worse than uh, uh, some of the medium-sized and uh, uh, smaller airlines. The smaller airlines can react faster if they have the support of their governments, of course, uh, and uh, uh, they are more flexible. Hopefully, the optimism of IATA's Director-General will be realised. If it is, then Aer Lingus can continue to serve the 300,000 passengers now travelling each year on Ireland's own Transocean Airway. Come home, Paddy Riley.